You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 371 of this podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Edmund Burke's A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful, with an introductory discourse concerning taste and several other additions. I am looking at this on the website for Gutenberg.org. They have a full print version of the book. First edition of this work was published 1756. The second with large editions in the year 1757, as they have footnotes here making clear. But you, for your part, can definitely check out the print copy if you want to search it. It's very easy to pull quotes from the print version. And I'm going to read for you the preface here in a few minutes, but first I want to talk about something weird and wonderful that happened yesterday at the end of the day. I am working on my seven days on. I'm on my seven days on, and that stretches until this coming Wednesday, which will be the last of my seven days on, and then starting Thursday, I am off work for seven days. This is not my day job, just to be clear, this podcasting business is something that I do for the love of it. I don't make any money to speak of. Actually, I have made uh, $50. I, I did a, a advertising bit for a while where I was promoting Anchor FM in every episode, and then they stopped paying me, so I stopped doing it. So that's how that works. Uh, I was doing that for a little while, but... Other than the $50, I kid you not, $50 that they paid me for running those ads in my episodes, uh, I don't make any money from podcasting. I'm just doing this for the love of it and for the love of my listeners. I love the people who are listening, and that includes especially my wife and my children who do listen to this, Lauren, Josiah, Eli, Solomon, Daniel, Evelyn, Enoch, John, and yes, Andrew, although I don't know that he's getting a whole lot out of it just yet. He's only a few months old. Someday, maybe, perhaps. But you also, even if you're not my wife or my children, I love you too. And I hope that this podcasting business does you some good. I hope it's a beneficial thing. I hope that it is comforting. I hope that it's encouraging. I hope that it's challenging. I hope that I am serving as a good example, both when I am pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful, and also when I make a mistake and I say something amiss, and then I own it. I hope that both of those are helpful and serve you well. But as I said, something weird and wonderful, something strange and beautiful and odd and unexpected happened yesterday when someone who I don't even know the name of, actually. It was a 
funny thing. I'm not very good with remembering names. And so maybe it's all the same. I have a feeling I would have remembered this young man's name. But someone just called me up out of the blue. Just called me up after having found my phone number on the website or at the Facebook page for the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I have my phone number listed on there if you go in through WhatsApp. And this guy decided to use it. A second year college student calls me up. And I at first thought it was a work call. And I should have known better, I guess. Uh, the area code was a New York, New York number. But I should have known better because nobody at work that I work with here anyways uh, is calling me from a New York number. Most of the guys out here are calling from a Colorado number. But this guy calls me up and he says, hey, um, yeah, th- this is going to be really weird. <laughs> Which is great. It's a great way to start a conversation. I don't know you and you don't know me, but I found uh, several of your articles on the internet and you, you seem like the kind of guy who I could ask some of these questions to that, uh, you know, I just honestly, I just, I need somebody to talk with about these things because they're bothering me and I, I don't feel like I could talk with my pastor about this. He says, I, I go to a church that, uh, is uh, uniracial. I was born here in the U.S., but I spent several years of my childhood growing up in China, and I am Chinese. I'm a Chinese-American, and I I don't feel like I could ask uh, my pastor the questions that I have in view to ask, uh, but wh- what do you do, What what do I do with my fellow uh, Chinese, uh, ethnically Chinese, Americans or Brits uh, who hate Chinese people. What, what do I do with that? It, you know, it's like if you if you hated some other race as a Chinese person, then I could say, well, that's racist. And you, you know, you can't can't be saying that kind of stuff. Don't say that kind of stuff. That's not a good attitude. You know, if it were other people hating Chinese people as a rule then I could say, ah, that's racist. You, you know, don't, don't say that. That's not appropriate. That's wrong. But what do you do when it's your own people hating your own people? And there's this self-loathing aspect to their attitude. And I'll give you just, just a brief overview of what I told them because it was uh, over an hour long uh, conversation and I, you know, he asked if he could call me again sometime. I was needing to run. I was late for a Gladii Veritas meeting, my writing club. Um, but, you know, I, I told him, I said, you know, well, like, let's get a couple of things straight. One, whatever the government of China is like right now with regards to uh, communist oppression, repression of dissent, Repression of religious minorities, uh, repression of 
anyone who is critical of the Chinese Communist Party or its goals, its agenda, its objectives, uh, whatever the Chinese Communist Party uh, may have for sins and faults, uh, China as a country by no means has a monopoly on misbehavior and sin and being awful to fellow human beings. Now, it, as a country, as a force in the world, as an organized entity capable of doing either great mischief or great good in the world, uh, China is very concerning right now. But that doesn't mean that the Chinese people are, as a category, at fault for what the CCP is up to and what the CCP has designs to do in the future. That's not on you guys uh, as, as a race. I mean, it, people, people are people. Uh, and, and so we talked about how actually a fair number of Americans, particularly of my generation, have very similar uh, ways of thinking and feeling. This anti-racism, anti-white, uh, CRT type thinking, uh, actually, you know, as Bobby and Joseph were pointing out in our IGV meeting last night, uh, that same kind of thinking has definitely been circulating in China as well, that same CRT-type thinking. And my conjecture, actually, and I got to thinking about it as I was talking with them after my phone call with this uh, anonymous college student, uh, you know, my thinking on it is that we have, in the case of the past hundred years of Chinese history, we have a culture which uh, underwent Mao's cultural revolution. And necessary for that cultural re revolution and a destroying and a demolishing of everything that was historically Chinese was creating an animus and a, and a hatred and a resentment and a kind of self-loathing. Everything that we are and everything that we've been before, uh, you know, is awful. And so, you know, as close to the Christian idea of atonement as they can get is let's just destroy our history. Since we can't imagine redemption and atonement for these things, we'll just destroy them. We'll destroy any memory of them. And then we'll be absolved. Uh, except it doesn't work that way. You you need God's power. You need God's forgiveness and redemption and atonement uh, that you, you can't you can't just delete your browser history as a country as a culture and and you can't just embrace the self-loathing and imagine that thereby you atone for your own sins it doesn't work that way uh, all there is for it is confessing your own sins and repenting of those and believing in Jesus that's that's all there is for it and that's all there is to it as well uh, but you know, we know the end of the story that gathered around the throne is going to be the church from every tribe, every tongue, every nation under heaven. Every. And that includes plenty of Chinese Christians as well as plenty of Christians from every nation uh, other than China. And that's God's plan. His plan is not to save a whole people or to damn a whole people and exclude a whole people. 
but he will take representatives. He will take his chosen and has and will and does adopt them in if they believe in Christ. And so that's the good news. And it's good news in part because it allows you to have peace with God and it allows you to have peace with your fellow man, maybe even peace with yourself. So great conversation, weird and wonderful. As I said, that has never happened to me before. I have never been called up out of the blue by someone who found my content on the internet and was touched by it and just needed someone to talk with. But I feel honored that this young man uh, felt like he had gotten to know me from the content I've published, felt like I was someone, uh, as he said, who's going to be honest and not easily offended and uh, also uh, is thoughtful and and is trying to think about these things and, and think out the implications of the Christian worldview, uh, including but not limited to with regards to uh, the things that were bothering him. So uh, if you're listening, young anonymous college student, uh, thank you again for calling. And feel free, uh, let me just throw this out there, feel free to leave an audio message at Anchor FM if you record and send in an audio message to the podcast from Anchor FM, I can actually very easily incorporate that clip. If it's a question, if it's a comment, if it's an observation, if you've got something to say back to something that I say in one of these episodes or something you'd like me to talk about in one of these episodes, uh, I can very easily incorporate that into the podcast as just a little clip. And I would love to do that. So if you ever have a question, you want me to address something on the podcast, uh, help a brother out and send it in that way. Not to say you can't call. You can definitely call if you've got my number. And now everybody knows how to <laughs> get access to my number. Uh, yeah, so feel free to, to make use of that. But moving on. Concerning... The main topic of this episode, we will say more in just a moment. I have one more thing I want to talk about before we jump into Burke. Uh, You can expect shortly, soon. I don't know if I'll be ready tomorrow. I'm hoping to be. But you can expect a review of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Cobes Dumez, which I am reading right now. I am reading Jesus and John Wayne uh, yesterday and today. I should be done with it today, hopefully. Uh, it is a, a little bit of a train wreck, not to give too much away. We will say more about it, uh, but I am fascinated and also horrified at the same time. Make sure you tune in uh, for the book review of that. I think it's going to be very, very uh, interesting to a number of you. If you haven't read the book, if you have no intentions of reading the book, it is still worthwhile to treat it and to deal with it. Uh, Much like if you are a a defense attorney, here's how I was describing it to my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, Uh, If you're a defense attorney and your client 
is accused of some crime, which you know they're innocent of. You know, they might be guilty of some things, but they're not guilty of the crime they stand accused of. And the death penalty or life in prison you know, is at stake as a penalty if they're found guilty, if they're convicted. You have to listen to the arguments of the prosecuting attorney. You, you, the prosecutor is going to make their case. They're going to present evidence. And if you are the defense attorney, you have to listen to their arguments. You have to if you're going to rebut them. If you're going to say, wait a second, objection, your honor, point of order or out of bounds or bad form or whatever, you've got to listen to their arguments. So that's what I'm doing here. I think this is as good a book as any I have come across in terms of what the charges are against conservative evangelical Christianity in America. That's all I'll say about it for the purposes of this episode. But subscribe if you haven't subscribed to this podcast. You'll get a notification. Go to the com. You can sign up for email alerts there. Or you can subscribe here at whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on. And it will be soon. I can promise you that. As for Burke, though, a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful with an introductory discourse concerning taste and several other additions. They just don't make titles like that anymore, and I wish that they did, because sometimes there's just nothing for it except to go all in. Yep, you know what? I know you want me to get this in in 150 characters or less, but I need 180. It just There's nothing for it. I can't say what I mean to unless I use this word, and this word happens to be longer, and I need to use this phrase because this word is not a fitting substitute for that phrase. Yes, I know it's a little wordy, but still, you're going to have to have that 0.75 seconds additional attention span or else uh, move along. You know, uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death comes to mind. Don't be so self-indulgent that you think everything needs to be as quick in the payoff as you're used to. It could just be you've been conditioned to be very dumb and you should wise up. Uh, Smarten yourself up by reading something like Edmund Burke's Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful. It is very smart and refreshing, and it's very accessible. I thought it was very accessible in any event. And I want to read for you, just to give you a sample. I gave one the other day in the episode about my two oldest sons going to the homeschooling dance. But that was concerning the most beautiful part, perhaps the most beautiful part of a beautiful woman. Uh, You can go back and listen to that episode again if you want to hear uh, the quote I read directly from the book. But here is the preface for Burke on the sublime and beautiful, if we can give a shorthand. And I quote, I have endeavored to make this edition something more full and satisfactory than the first. I have sought with the utmost care and read with equal attention everything which has appeared in public against my opinions. I have taken advantage of the candid liberty of my friends and 
if by these means I have been better enabled to discover the imperfections of the work, the indulgence it has received, imperfect as it was, furnished me with a new motive to spare no reasonable pains for its improvement. Though I have not found sufficient reason, or what appeared to me sufficient, for making any material change in my theory, I have found it necessary in many places to explain, illustrate, and enforce it. I have prefixed an introductory discourse concerning taste. It is a matter curious in itself, and it leads naturally enough to the principal inquiry. This, with the other explanations, has made the work considerably larger, and by increasing its bulk has, I am afraid, added to its faults, so that, notwithstanding all my attention, it may stand in need of a yet greater share of indulgence than it required at its first appearance. Now, okay, pause. That's, you know, the first paragraph. I just, I, I want to insert a comment, an observation, if you will. This is Garrett speaking, not Burke, for just a moment. <clears throat> what did he just say? Yeah, were, you, were you listening and paying attention closely? What he just said was he published the original work and he stands by his position in the first edition. But he's read the critics. He's read the people who disagreed with, who challenged his claims. He's read them, and he is not changing his theory. But he does realize there are a few points that he needs to unpack a little bit more. He needs to be able to explain this in greater depth for us to be able to appreciate what it is that he's trying to say. That's, that's really what this amounts to. And, and there's a very graceful, elegant, gentlemanly quality to all of it. Do you, do you get that? There's a graceful, gentlemanly quality to his saying that among the faults of the first work, uh, perhaps, were that it was too long. Right? So what is it we were just saying about needing to stretch our attention spans, titles being longer back then than they are now, us amusing ourselves to death, cultivating a short attention span. In some measure, no temptation has seized us, but that which is common to man. They were uh, perhaps also then giving reviews like TLDR. Too long, didn't read. TLDR. Uh, but alas. Uh, I, love the, I, I love the language here. I love the diction. I love the way of unwrapping in an unhurried unpracticed fashion, the explanation, the introduction, the preface to what is going to follow. It embodies the ideas that he is going to be communicating throughout by being graceful and elegant and dignified and confident, but not over-promising, not boasting, just saying, if you will, here's my position. But moving on. And I quote, They who are accustomed to studies of this nature will expect, and they will allow too for many faults, they know that many of the objects of our inquiry are in themselves obscure and intricate, and that many others have been rendered so by affected refinements or false learning. They know that there are many impediments in the subject, in the prejudices of others, and even in our own that render it a matter of no small difficulty to show in a clear light the genuine face of nature. They know that whilst 
The mind is intent on the general scheme of things. Some particular parts must be neglected. That we must often submit the style to the matter and frequently give up the praise of elegance, satisfied with being clear. Okay, now I don't think he really had to give up uh, the praise of elegance. Maybe that's just uh, proof of how far we have fallen. I think it surely is to some extent. For our purposes, for our tastes, he gave up nothing, the praise of elegance. And yet, what he's saying here is, we may have had to give up being elegant for the sake of being clear sometimes. Now, it's, it's a very graceful way of phrasing it, and yet you could put it in a more American type of bluntness, it ain't pretty, <laughs> but it'll do. <laughs> or as Red Green, the Canadian comedian, was fond of saying, if the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy. Moving on. And I quote, The characters of nature are legible, it is true, but they are not plain enough to enable those who run to read them. We must make use of a cautious I had almost said a timorous method of proceeding. We must not attempt to fly when we can scarcely pretend to creep. In considering any complex matter, we ought to examine every distinct ingredient in the composition one by one and reduce everything to the utmost simplicity since the condition of our nature binds us to a strict law and very narrow limits. We ought afterwards to re-examine the principles by the effect of the composition, as well as the composition by that of the principles. We ought to compare our subject with things of a similar nature, and even with things of a contrary nature. For discoveries may be, and often are, made by the contrast which would escape us on the single view. The greater number of the comparisons we make, the more general and the more certain our knowledge is likely to prove as built upon a more extensive and perfect induction. Now again, this is the unwrapping of a present. This is the unwrapping of a gift for you as the reader. This is how you introduce a book and a topic this is how you do it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a master class as far as I'm concerned. And maybe I'm speaking out of my own ignorance, my own lack of refined taste and experience, but this is beautifully written, very elegant, very artful. Now, what is he saying? And he's essentially saying not just that sometimes we have to give up elegance for the sake of being clear. He's also saying we have to give up being in a hurry, if you will, stop and smell the roses. But also, we understand and appreciate the softness of the rose petal when we feel the prick of the rose thorn. And there is something about the pairing of the sublime and the beautiful, the great and terrible on the one hand, and the pretty and the frail and the delicate on the other hand. 
there's something about the compare and contrast between those two categories of things which helps us to appreciate all the more both of them. Now, he's not saying that everything is relative, but he is saying, in some sense, that just like you sometimes miss a forest for the trees, you don't miss a single solitary tree standing out in a field all by its lonesome, jutting up into the sky with nothing but grass and rocks around it. You don't miss it. You can't miss it. And actually, all the more does the grass seem in perspective when you're seeing that grass in contrast to a mighty oak in the middle of an open field under a blue sky. But I love, I love the way he's explaining why we need to not be in a hurry here. I love it. We must not attempt to fly, which here is not flying like you would think of, like you jump on an airplane and you're flying out of Denver to Williston, North Dakota, let's say, where my brother-in-law just recently flew back to. No, fly here has an older meaning of hurrying, running. Uh, think Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings. When Gandalf faces off against the Balrog in the mines of Moria as they're trying to escape, the whole party, the whole fellowship of the rings trying to escape, Gandalf ends up being pulled down by the Balrog's whip. And as he's hanging on the edge, just about to let go and slip down into the black abyss, what does he say? Fly, you fools. What he means is, Run, get out of here, hurry as fast as you can. So Burke here, he says, we must not fly. We must not attempt to fly when we can scarcely pretend to creep, which is to say these topics are big and complicated and complex and wonderful and definitely worthy of our time and attention. And don't be in such a hurry because even when we are going very slowly, we are missing a lot, and there's a lot to take in, right? Moving on, and I quote, If an inquiry thus carefully conducted should fail at last of discovering the truth, it may answer an end, perhaps as useful, in discovering to us the weakness of our own understanding. If it does not make us knowing, it may make us modest. If it does not preserve us from error, it may at least from the spirit of error and may make us cautious of pronouncing with positiveness or with haste when so much labor may end in so much uncertainty. Stop. Pause. Comment. What is this? What is Burke saying here? What is he getting at? What is he meaning? What he means is, even if you don't understand the subject, even if you don't understand, if we don't understand this whole topic of the sublime and the beautiful, there is still a benefit. And you say, well, how could there be a benefit? I don't understand what you're talking about. Aha, but you admitted it. You admitted that you didn't understand what we were talking about. And that is a benefit. You scratch your head and you say, well, how could that be a benefit? I don't understand. I feel stupid. I feel dumb. Aha, uh -huh. yes, yes, you do. 
You do, exactly. Yes, you do feel dumb. And that is a benefit. And you say, well, how can that be a benefit? It's not good to feel dumb. I don't like feeling dumb. To which Burke says, yeah, but you're humble now. You're modest. That's a benefit. You understand that you don't understand. That's a benefit. You might have thought until you started trying to quantify and explain what makes a thing beautiful. You might have thought that was such a simple question. And then someone asks it and you're trying to answer it and you realize, oh, wait a second. Hold on. That's a benefit. Because now you might be a little more humble. You might be a little bit more modest. And that's not so bad. That's actually a benefit. Moving on. I could wish that in examining this theory, the same method were pursued, which I endeavored to observe in forming it. The objections, in my opinion, ought to be proposed either to the several principles as they are distinctly considered or to the justness of the conclusion which is drawn from them. But it is common to pass over both the premises and conclusion in silence and to produce as an objection some poetical passage which does not seem easily accounted for upon the principles I endeavor to establish. This manner of proceeding I should think very proper. The task would be infinite if we could establish no principle until we had previously unraveled the complex texture of every image or description to be found in poets and orators. And though we should never be able to reconcile the effect of such images to our principles, this can never overturn the theory itself, whilst it is founded on certain and indisputable facts. A theory founded on experiment and not assumed is always good for so much as it explains. Our inability to push it indefinitely is no argument at all against it. This inability may be owning to our ignorance of some necessary mediums, to a want of proper application, to many other causes besides a defect in the principles we employ. In reality, the subject requires a much closer attention than we dare claim from our manner of treating it. What did all of that mean, you may be wondering? We may not know perfectly, and yet, so far as we can know, there is still a benefit relative how useful the information is, how much practical use we can get from our knowledge as far as we get in our knowledge. However much better we understand the subject and appreciate it, that is the degree to which it is beneficial. It is not all or nothing, in other words. So, for instance, when I was recently reviewing Herman Bavink's book to look for errors and to do copy editing, Herman Bavink's The Christian Philosophy of Science talks about the difference between knowledge and faith, or knowledge and belief. All knowledge comes from belief, according to Bavink. We have to believe that something might be true before we can know, before we can investigate and find out whether, in fact, it is true. And also, not always do we all mean the very same thing when we say knowledge, because our knowledge is not complete and total and infinite. As Christians, we read what Paul writes in Corinthians, where he says we see now as through a glass dimly, and we take that seriously, and we understand that we 
do not yet know, even as we are fully known. God knows fully, we do not know fully. And yet, there is a benefit in the searching. There is a benefit in the quest for truth. If the aim of the quest for truth is to love God better, to love one another better, to appreciate better the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the truth and the goodness of God as made manifest in his creation. It is not all or nothing. That is the big idea Burke is conveying here, although much more elegantly than I am summarizing because I'm an American and this is the year 2022, wouldn't you know? Moving on, and I quote, If it should not appear on the face of the work, I must caution the reader against imagining that I intended a full dissertation on the sublime and beautiful. My inquiry went no farther than to the origin of these ideas. If the qualities which I have ranged under the head of the sublime be all found consistent with each other and all different from those which I place under the head of beauty, And if those which compose the class of the beautiful have the same consistency with themselves and the same opposition to those which are classed under the denomination of sublime, I am in little pain whether anybody chooses to follow the name I give them or not, provided he allows that what I dispose under different heads are in reality different things in nature. The use I make of the words may be blamed as too confined or too extended, my meaning cannot well be misunderstood, end quote. In other words, whatever you're going to call the rose, it would still smell as sweet. A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet, which we know when you survey the difference in languages across the world, across history. The Mandarin Chinese is going to sound different. It's going to be a different word than American English. The French are going to use still another word. But if you go to Arabia and their word for beautiful or sublime doesn't sound like the word you use back home, the important thing, according to Burke, is that you understand these are two very separate and distinct categories of things found in nature. That's the big idea. That's what he's getting at. Moving on. And I quote, To conclude, whatever progress may be made towards the discovery of truth in this matter, I do not repent the pains I have taken in it. The use of such inquiries may be very considerable. Whatever turns the soul inward on itself tends to concenter its forces and to fit it for greater and stronger flights of science. By looking into physical causes, our minds are opened and enlarged, and in this pursuit, whether we take or whether we lose our game, the chase is certainly of service. Cicero, true as he was to the academic philosophy, and consequently led to reject the certainty of physical, as of every other kind of knowledge, yet freely confesses its great importance to the human understanding. Est animorum ingeniorum que nostrorem naturale codam quasi pabulum consideratio 
contemplatiaque naturae. If we can direct the lights, we derive from such exalted speculations upon the humbler field of the imagination, whilst we investigate the springs and trace the courses of our passions. We may not only communicate to the taste a sort of philosophical solidity, but we may reflect back on the severer sciences, some of the graces and elegances of taste, without which the greatest proficiency in those sciences will always have the appearance of something illiberal. End quote. <clears throat> that is the preface. Just imagine what the rest of it is like. The meat and potatoes of the rest of it. That's the introduction. The rest is as good or better. My apologies to anyone who is expert with Latin, if I just completely butchered that Latin quote of Cicero. I don't speak Latin. I know a little, but not that, apparently. But what is he saying here at the very last? I think we find this to be true. I think we find this to be very valid, that science, without an appreciation for the nature of beautiful and the sublime, has a very illiberal quality to it. Those harder sciences are downright slavish, even. There's a mechanical, ugly, brutal quality, which actually is not in accordance with reality, holistically. Almost like dissecting a frog. You can study a frog by watching it hop around on the edge of a pond. You can learn things about the frog without having to kill it and take it apart piece by piece. And the beautiful thing about watching a frog, studying a frog, learning about a frog by watching a frog that is alive, bouncing around, hopping around, eating some bugs, swimming, etc., is that it's alive. It's an alive thing. The horrible thing about having to learn about the frog by dissecting it is that you have to kill it. You have to kill it in the process of taking it apart piece by piece by piece. Well, the same goes for reality and humanity and the soul apart from an appreciation for the true, the good, and the beautiful as necessary for life. If we appreciate that there is a science, there's a knowledge we can have that is worth having with regards to the beautiful and the sublime, that can help us to be a whole person and to be wholly alive, to be really truly alive, to be the whole man. And what is it that Jesus says when he's asked, which is the greatest commandment? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The kind of love that God calls us to is a love of the whole person, the whole person, all of us, and an appreciation of the fact that that includes more than just our physical bodies, more than just our minds, more than just our hearts, more than just our souls. The whole person has at least those four components one can gather, one can surmise. I would contend, I would propose 
reading and appreciating and studying what Burke has to say here will help you to be the whole person. But that's all the time I've got left for this episode. That's all the time we got. I'll put a link, as I said, in the episode description. If you want to read the whole thing, you definitely can. You can also find this work on Audible. That's where I listened to it. Stay tuned, as I said, for the upcoming review of Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumez. But in the meantime, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.